0: Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello, and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and this week I've got Chuck Fisher with me, who is CFO at Turo. Chuck, welcome to the Grow CFO Show.
1: Thanks very much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. What exactly did Turo do? So Turo is the world's largest peer-to-peer car sharing company. So it's a marketplace business. And the easiest way to think about it is Airbnb, which is a marketplace business that a lot of people know and understand. And the business model is essentially the same. We've developed a platform that matches hosts on one side, those who own cars. And it might be your own personal car. It might be a, a business that you've started on our platform with guests, are looking for vehicles. And it's a business that is fundamentally in service of our mission as a company, which is to put the world's 1.5 billion cars to better use. It is one of everybody's most expensive assets, and it is grossly underutilized. In the United States, cars sit idle about 95% of the time. And so whether you are somebody who's just looking to offset the cost of vehicle ownership, or you're looking for a way to make vehicle ownership affordable in the first place, or you're a, an entrepreneur who's looking to build a business on our platform, we provide that kind of access and opportunity. We believe it's a fundamentally better model, a better way to experience the borrowing or renting a vehicle. We've experienced tremendous growth. We are now in five countries uh, around the world, the US, Canada, UK, France, and Australia. It's been tremendously successful and well-received. And when people try it, they like it. We've got an NPS score on our guests of 80, which is uh, the envy of the industry. We're just getting started, even though we've had tremendous growth over these last uh, number of years.
0: That is pretty impressive. So, that's really trying to in- disrupt the car hire industry.
1: It is. You know, you think about the traditional rental car industry and you think about that business model, and it's fundamentally hasn't innovated. And changed in my lifetime. My experience with the traditional rental car companies is the same today, essentially, as it was when I first became old enough to interface with one of those companies and use their product. They tend to be very much anchored around airports because at the end of the day, it's almost a logistics business. They need to think about where do they have the physical assets and their physical inventory. And that tends to congregate around airports and sort of points of interest Whereas that's not necessarily the way people need to access vehicles these days. And in fact, with Turo, more than two thirds of our trips originate away from airports. One of the points of differentiation for us, in addition to the extraordinary unrivaled selection that we have, we've got over 1,400 makes and models of cars available to book on Turo. So if you're looking for something fun to try, you'd be, maybe you're curious about EVs and you want to see what that's like, does it fit into your lifestyle? We've got Uh, everything that you can think of on the platform for you. But we also have vehicles, all the major cities that you can imagine. We're in 11,000 cities around those five countries that I talked about. And our distribution network means that the convenience of having one of these vehicles located near you, wherever you may be, and then you add into that the fact that most of our hosts will offer delivery so that you can have a car delivered to your doorstep, any car you want. And when you're done, you just leave it right there and your host comes and picks it up for you. It's super convenient. And we've found that it is just a fundamentally better model. And when you've got the opportunity to compete against old traditional, largely offline industries, we think that it's a opportunity that's ripe for disruption and, despite the fact that we've grown tremendously, we've now got about 350,000 active vehicles on the platform. That's the kind of on the supply side. And we've got about 3.3 million guests who are active on the platform. It's just scratching the surface of the opportunity. As I said at the beginning, over 1.5 billion cars in the world, and we've got 350 odd thousand. So it's very early days.
0: And you've got the potential of being the biggest car hire business in the world without even owning a car.
1: We absolutely do. Absolutely no infrastructure, no inventory, no CapEx in the business. It's very capital efficient. And we think about the opportunity. We absolutely think we could be the biggest car hire business. But we think that the opportunity is actually bigger than that. And when we think about our TAM or total addressable market, we're not just thinking about taking share from the traditional rental car companies, although that's certainly part of the opportunity. We're also thinking about the expanded use cases that we unlock because of the nature of our supply, the the selection that I talked about, and because of the convenience that we offer by being everywhere that people need to be. So we we talked about EVs. One of the very popular use cases for us is try before you buy. You look at the percentage of vehicles that are new model years or EVs. It's about 15% of our trips are GBV, which is gross booking value is from alternative vehicles or new model year vehicles. We've got product for car enthusiasts who are looking to try something that they've always had their eye on. We've got obviously certainly exotic and expensive makes and models, but we also have the nostalgic vehicle, the one that you remember from maybe from your teenage years. We have long duration trips. About 40% of our GBV is long duration, seven days or longer. So these are people, you know, maybe that Don't own a car and they need it for a specific period of time. During the pandemic, there was a lot of healthcare workers that were traveling to different locations that needed vehicles that were not in their home market. Or you think about all the digital nomads who uh, sprung up during COVID and are finding themselves for a month or two here, a month or two there. And we provide the opportunity for them to have uh, mobility while they're in those markets. It is certainly a share gain story, but we think it's much broader than that, in largely the same way that you think about the way Uber was originally construed as a market defined by how much share can they take from taxis and black cars. And then once you saw what Uber did and the innovation that it unlocked, it was actually grew the marketplace. It was a much bigger opportunity than just black cars and taxis. And we think we've got the same kind of story, the same kind of potential to grow the market beyond just traditional rental car.
0: That's fantastic. I guess that that's uh, something you can grow with very, very little new capital in the business, because it's essentially an online offering, completely online platform.
1: That's right. Most recent new market that we launched was Australia, which we just launched in November of last year. So it's been up and running for less than a year now. And all you need is you hire a country manager, someone who's going to build a small team in that market that can focus on the local market initiatives and marketing and driving sales and managing and building relationships with the host community. But effectively it's pushing a button and getting started. One of the reasons we looked at Australia as a a market that was interesting for us to move into is because we could see how many Australians were already using the service when they came to the U S as tourists. And they would see the licenses that are not American and where do they come from? Well, you won't be surprised that the largest percentage of non-American tourists, folks who use the platform come from Canada, the UK, France, and Australia. And those are the four non-American markets that we operate in. And so we just reach out to all those folks that have been used the platform before. We send them an email and say, hey, I know you've tried Toro. How would you like to be a host? And then you begin seeding the market with new hosts and new supply. And then when the day comes, and that day was November 30th last year, you just press the button. The site goes live and you're up and running.
0: I guess your biggest cost in all of this is probably the advertising and the marketing spend.
1: It's sales and marketing, certainly. And that's an opportunity for us while we have, I think we've been very efficient in our sales and our approach to sales and marketing. And in fact, almost 80% of the traffic that we get to our site is organic. We don't pay for it. And we've got a lot of work to do, to be honest, in terms of driving more awareness of the Turo brand. Our unaided awareness is still too low. And we think that's a real opportunity. That's probably the largest expense. The other thing that we need to consider is how we pay for insurance. We are economically self-insuring, which is the way that we have built our product to ensure that hosts and guests are fully protected, full peace of mind on any trip that they take. And we have built in the coverage and the models that allow us to effectively manage that risk. We have built something internally called the Turo Risk Score, which is a proprietary data set. That functions like a sort of an actuarial service that allows us to make decisions in the business to drive not just growth, but profitable growth and to price the risk accordingly of any given trip based upon the characteristics that the model tells us. It's a real time tool that is informed by AI and machine learning that ingests all the data from all of the millions of trips and the billions of miles that have been driven on the Turo platform to help us make smart decisions about customer acquisition. And pricing of risk so that we can manage the cost associated with the odd time that it does happen when there's an accident, a fender bender or something more serious. We're able to absorb that cost and still have profitable unit economics.
0: I must say that if I was using the service myself, either as a host or as a renter, certainly after finding the vehicle I wanted, my first big question would be insurance. What's my liability if something goes wrong?
1: Yeah. And certainly as a host, you make a choice of what type of a package you'd like to be on with us. And we have anything from what we call the 90 plan, where you as the host keeps 90 cents of the dollar from every trip. We, Turo, keep 10 cents. And if there is an accident of any kind with your vehicle while it's out on a Turo trip, you pay a deductible and then we take care of all the rest. Some hosts choose to do the 60 plan, which means they only keep 60 cents on the dollar. And if there happens to be an accident while they're out on the trip, there's no deductible. We're paying first dollar for any risk that associated with damage on the trip. And now if you're a guest, there's a range of different packages that you can choose from that protect you and cap your risk associated with damage that you might be responsible for on your trip. So you have complete peace of mind on both sides of the transaction.
0: Chuck, tell me about your role as the CFO in the organization. What's the big thing that keeps you busy?
1: I joined Toro about two and a half years ago, March of 2021. And when I joined, the business was roughly $150 million in revenue. We had just kind of come out of the period of time of COVID. Um, as a country, we're getting vaccinated. People were traveling again. But most of the travel was happening domestically. And we saw tremendous growth. So to answer your question, one of the things that I've been focused on is helping build and support an organization that can absorb that kind of growth. We grew in 2021 213%. We went from $150 million in revenue to $470 million in revenue. And so a tripling of the size of the business means you need to be prepared from an internal perspective to be able to support that growth. We need to have the internal teams, the people, the systems, the processes to be able to function and make sure that all of those new customers that we acquired that year, whether they're guests or hosts are having a terrific experience on the platform. So that meant a lot of investment back in our team, made a lot of investment back in our platform, investment in our hosts. We made sure that we were put passing along a lot of that incremental activity in terms of more economics to our hosts to so increase their take rate. So it was a lot of decisions and work on the team to help support and drive that growth so that we were successful and could capitalize on this opportunity. And as we rolled into 2022, that was another strong year. We kind of came off that moment where there was uh, the rental car crunch that defined 2021, but we still grew our top line almost 60%, 59% in 2022, closed the year at almost $750 million of revenue. And I would point out that in both 21 and 22, we were profitable. We were generating free cash flow. We we're EBITDA positive. If you know anything about these transportation mobility businesses, it's pretty unique. It's quite rare. So We were as a finance organization working to make the decisions when there's always these trade-offs between investing for growth and managing profitability. And we've been able to find kind of, I think, the sweet spot between growth and profitability so that we're growing and we're still investing in pursuing this huge opportunity that we think is in front of us, which we've just only scratched the surface of, but doing so in a way that maintains profitability. And all the while when i joined we were in the very early stages of getting the company ready to look at the public markets we were just going through the drafting process and we got ourselves on file in 2021 and we have now been on file since the beginning of 22 we flipped our s1 public and so it's been a long time in just sort of being in this moment of readiness and part of what my job is as an organization as a cfo to support the organization to be ready as a public company and i think that a lot of The thinking about IPOs focuses on the actual event of the IPO, but really what I think you as a CFO need to make sure you're doing is getting the company ready to exist as a public company. So once the transaction is done and now you're out there operating in the public company environment where the margin for error is zero, you need to make sure that you've got the systems, the people, the processes to be able to function reliably, and consistently, and effectively in a public company environment. And so that's what we've been doing a lot of, getting the company ready for that, whenever that may be. And
0: that's a big challenge, certainly in my experience in a fast-growing company, is you very quickly grow out of those initial systems you put in place. You find mm-hmm. that you've moved the business model on to something that those systems can't quite cope with. You've got workarounds
1: and all sorts of things. and yes
0: going back and making them robust.
1: It's an astute observation because, you know, Turo is not a new company. It's been around since 2010. And yet when I arrived in 2021, it still sort of felt a little bit like a company in its adolescence. And it was still using homegrown systems and homegrown tools that had helped get the company from where it started to where it was now. But that wasn't necessarily going to be the appropriate set of systems and processes and tools that would allow the company to scale to the next level. And, you know, when you go in through a year where you triple the size of the business, there's a lot of catching up that you need yeah. to do from an internal kind of just the infrastructure perspective, the scaffolding to support the organizational growth.
0: It starts falling apart, but in some ways it's a nice problem to have because it says you're being successful.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. And the finance role is one of those roles in a company that if everything's going smoothly, you don't notice it. But mm-hmm. when something goes wrong, it can be a kind of system failure. So you have to you maintain that kind of a reliability in the background so that hopefully nobody ever notices you.
0: Chuck, I know you're sitting in New York as we speak, yep. but the company is based in California. How does that work? The CFO is in a different location to the the head office of the company.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When we were early in 2022, we were sitting with our board and we had laid out our plan for the year and it was relatively ambitious. And our board said to us at the time, what's the biggest risk that you see as a management team in executing against this plan? And our CEO responded without hesitation, hiring and retaining our team. And the board said, Okay, well, what's the biggest barrier that you have to hiring people that you need, hiring high quality talent? and retaining the people that you want to retain? And the answer, again, quickly was, well, we have a strict in-office policy at Turo. And that's not in keeping with the sort of the norms of certainly of Silicon Valley and certainly Silicon Valley Tech Town. And so the board said, well, so then change it. Just be flexible. And so we moved to a flexible model where folks who are in San Francisco or Phoenix, where we have offices in the US, or Toronto, London, Paris, Sydney, They're encouraged to come into the office as often as they want. And team by team, everybody has sort of a different strategy. But you don't need to, and you don't necessarily need to live where we have offices anymore. And it's opened up the hiring funnel for us. So now we can access talent that's terrific talent. It doesn't have to be residing in the Bay Area, where the competition for engineering and tech talent, marketing talent was fierce and continues to be fierce
0: area becomes a a very expensive place to live. I was talking to a a podcast guest a couple of weeks ago, and she was pointing out that you couldn't live in San Francisco itself unless you had a seven-figure
1: salary. That's exactly right. It's a very expensive part of the world to live in. And so we have the opportunity now to find terrific talent in all these different pockets where there's great tech talent, Austin and Denver and New York and all across the country. So that's been the positive. And our employees like it. Our culture remains very much intact. The engagement of our teams remains very high. But I will say to you, I don't think it's something that comes for free. There is a cost to being virtual. And I know that from my perspective, not being physically located in the place where my team is means that you need to go out of your way to make sure that you're being thoughtful about The taking the time to check in with your team to make sure that you're connecting, to make sure that you're bringing people together in more purposeful ways, because you miss all those sort of serendipitous opportunities to just check in and say hi because you pass each other in the hall or you're in the cafeteria. All of that is missing. So the burden on the people managers, on the leaders to schedule time with their teams to make sure that everybody's development is on track and that you're problems aren't festering below the surface that you're nipping things in the bud. And then I also just think that I do make an effort to get physically to San Francisco on a regular cadence. So I am spending time with the team and I do think there's no substitute for in-person interaction. So I think that helps. And then twice a year at Turo, we bring our entire company together. In the fall, we do it in Phoenix. In the spring, we do it in San Francisco. We bring people from all of our five markets around the world and we get together for a full week. We call it Turbo Week. And we share information and we socialize and we connect in both professional and personal ways with the entire team in a way that helps infuse the kind of the spirit of our company, the spirit of Turo, in a way that I think is much more tangible because you're all together physically located in one, in one spot. So we make it work. And so far for us, we found that productivity and engagement and levels of satisfaction amongst the employees, as expressed in things like retention, has been very, very strong. Where's your finance team located? The bulk of my team is in San Francisco, but we have some folks that are in Phoenix. And we've got some folks on the team that are remote in Denver and and other spots. But my direct reports are all based in San Francisco.
0: Okay. So you see your direct reports fairly regularly because you're getting out there.
1: Yeah. That's right. And I have weekly one-on-ones with them on Zoom and we have weekly team meetings on Zoom. And so we're seeing each other and interacting weekly. There's never a week that goes by that we don't connect, but on a regular cadence, I'm physically getting to San Francisco as well.
0: How do you pick up the, you're in the office and you can spot sometimes when somebody's not quite on their A game, there's something yes. else going on. And mm-hmm. you might have a, have a chat and say, oh, is everything all right? And how
1: do you make that that sort of conversation work? There's no way to get around it. The remote work style requires all interactions to be scheduled, pretty much. I mean, you can pick up the phone and call somebody and maybe you'll get them. But by and large, if I'm going to be connecting with one of my team members, we're getting on a Zoom or I'm putting something in their calendar and it's a scheduled interaction, what that misses is the casual or serendipitous interactions or the ability to observe body language or behavior in and around and away from kind of a, a professional interaction, like a meeting or a one-on-one or something like that. It puts the impetus and the onus on the on team to be more vigilant and more proactive about reaching out and asking and checking in with people. But I think when you look at what you gain from going virtual, you have to also recognize what you lose and you do lose some of that. I think there's no getting around it.
0: So from a personal point of view, do you find that you spend most of your time in New York at home or are you going into an office?
1: It's a mix. Our largest shareholder is a company called IAC, Interactive Corp., uh, the Barry Diller company, and they're based in New York. And I have an office in their building. So I'm in there, I would say, about half the time and then working from home about half the time when I'm in New York.
0: It's a good, flexible model. You can get in the environment you need. I like that. I work from home 100% of the time. And I think it's great, but I do miss seeing people. I do miss those interactions with the team that take place around the water cooler, the coffee machines. Yes,
1: I do as well. And I think that it's also something that's important for young people starting their career to think about. It's easy to underestimate the value of that time in the office, the social time, the camaraderie that you build by being physically connected with people in, in an office. Environment, you go out and grab a salad at lunch together, or maybe you do something after work. All of that kind of stuff that just happens because you're physically together is is certainly what I miss about the flexible or hybrid structure that we have. And yes, there's a lot of positives about it. The flexibility is very nice. But you know, if I was advising my kids who are older now—a 22-year-old, a 20-year-old—and they're you know getting ready to be starting to think about getting into the workforce in earnest, I encourage them to seek out as much in-person uh, opportunities to work as they can, because I think when you're just starting out, you really benefit from spending time with your peers, but also the people that are managing you, watching how people go about their daily work life from the mentorship opportunities that come from that. I think those are all very valuable.
0: I think that's the, definitely the category of the workforce that I think are, uh, potentially going to lose out the most from hybrid work. They might think it's great from the amount of extra social time they get, but it's very difficult. I can remember t- dealing with a number of junior folk and pointing out individuals around the office and just saying, watch and learn.
1: It's right. very, very
0: difficult to do that remotely. Yeah. It's also very difficult to spot where those junior members and staff are getting stuck, intervening at the right moment. I think we've still got a lot to learn to make the model really work properly.
1: Yeah. Different industries are seem to be taking a different approach. I'm a finance professional. I used to be an investment banker and I look around at the investment banks in New York and on my friends and old colleagues that still work in that industry. For them, by and large, they're all fully back to work five days a week in the office. And they decided as a group, You know, all of the companies in that industry decided that's the right model for them and that's what they're going to do. And so... It'll be interesting to see as we evolve three years down the road, was everybody going to go right back to that? Or will we still find that there's a group of companies that find that they just do absolutely fine remote or hybrid or something in between? And that's just going to be the new reality.
0: I think it's going to be very interesting to see. But, joke, you mentioned there that your background was investment banking. How does an investment banker end up in finance?
1: Investment banking, obviously, as a function is a finance-oriented skill set. And so I'm Canadian, born and raised, but I moved to New York to go to business school. And after graduating, I was a management consultant for a few years in New York. And then I moved over in the year 2000, beginning of 2000, I moved over to Lehman Brothers, where I joined the communications and media group. And obviously, as a banker, I thought I would spend a few years at Lehman and maybe move on and do something else. I didn't think it was going to be something that would become what was a 12-year career. But I found that I really liked it. I found that I connected with the work. I liked corporate finance. I liked doing you know, M&A and valuation work and capital structure modeling and thinking through how all of these tools could be used to help businesses grow and I liked being part of teams. You know, investment banking is very much a team sport. You win together, you lose together. There's a lot of sort of camaraderie that is built through the hardship of the long hours that you put in. One of the things that I certainly built an appreciation for and an understanding of is the value of hard work and the work ethic that is required to be successful as an investment banker. I learned about the value of putting a the customer first. I mean, it is a customer service business and the customer orientation, customer mindset is so crucial to being successful. And through that, I don't think that I had designs on being a CFO when I was an investment banker, although I did think that there should be life beyond banking. And for me, life beyond banking from a professional perspective, was at Charter Communications. I spent, after being a banker for about 12 or 13 years, I moved over to one of my clients, which was Charter, cable company based in Stanford, Connecticut. And I was the head of corporate finance and development. So I was responsible for all the M&A, all the capital markets activity. And then over time, I got involved in investor relations. I oversaw the IR team. I got involved in overseeing and managing our procurement organization, And then the treasury function as well. And so I got exposure to a broader sort of cross-section of finance functions and finance skills. And I got the opportunity to work for the CFO at Charter and a guy named Chris Winfrey. He's now the CEO of Charter, who taught me a lot about what it takes to be a great and effective CFO and what it means to be really truly focused on driving kind of the operational elements of a business. And the CFO role is so much more than just a finance role. It is a truly operational role where you have to be interested in, engaged, and curious about all aspects of the organization because you're going to be a partner to them, whether it's helping your marketing partner think about the trade-offs around investments in incremental brand spend versus performance marketing spend and how do we make those trade-offs and defining what the ROI should be or working with your HR partner as we think about devising our Benefits program, and what are the trade offs and benefits to a 401k matching policy or additional health benefits? Those all have a cost on the company, but they also have a benefit from a, an attraction of a higher quality talent and retaining our team. So you're thinking through all of those decisions that have sort of operational implications and operational bent to them, but there's a finance aspect. That means that you're partnering across the organization with all of these different groups. And it was a charter working with Chris that really sort of turned me on to the notion that being a CFO would be something that I would like and I think that, that I could be successful at. And it took a while to find the right role. And when Turo came along, it was a terrific fit. What was it that attracted you to Turo? I think there's a couple of things. When I was approached about the role, I was approached by the folks at IAC, as I mentioned, our, they're Turo's largest shareholder. And I knew some of the people at IAC from my time as an investment banker. They reached out to me and indicated that this company, that was one of their portfolio companies, was looking for a new CFO. And it was a good matching of my skill set and background with what turo was looking for in the cfo role and you know the cfo job is defined differently at different organizations and if you think about the broad strokes of what a cfo is responsible for there's the accounting piece of the job there's the fpna the planning piece of the job and then there's the external facing capital raising you know, facing with investors telling the story the narrative all of that kind of stuff and most cfos come from one of those three prongs, and they bring those skills to the role, and different companies are looking for folks of those backgrounds. This instance, this opportunity at Turo, they were looking for somebody with the capital markets experience, with the investor experience, being able to think about how to strategically grow the business and talk about the story and interface with Wall Street. As I mentioned, the company was contemplating an IPO and getting ready for that. And so it was a good marriage of my skill set with the needs of the company in the role. And then I thought that just the opportunity that Turo offered was terrific. The idea of a marketplace business that's disrupting a traditional industry where there's a tremendously large TAM, total addressable market, where we're in the early days of it, but... It was far enough along as a business where product market fit had been established. You knew that this business worked. They'd figured out a lot of the the kind of the growing pains and gotten through, solved the insurance problem. They were on the path to profitability. I felt like it was the right time and right opportunity. And as I said, I joined at a tremendously serendipitous time because the business tripled in size in my first year there. And the rest is history. It's been terrific and really nice. exciting.
0: Going back into that investment banking background, Lehman Brothers. You must have been there when they collapsed.
1: I was. I joined in 2000, and I was there all the way through till the very end, and September 15th, 2008, to be specific. I did most spent most of my time at Lehman in New York, the corporate head office there. But I spent three years in London. And I happened to actually be in London as an expat at the time when Lehman went bankrupt. And so it added an interesting incremental layer to the complication associated with working at a company that goes bankrupt. As an expat, a lot of your life is intertwined with the firm that brought you to that country we obviously was aware as a banker at Lehman at the time that the financial crisis was going on if you remember in in march of that year bear stearns was acquired almost went bankrupt but was acquired by jp morgan at the last minute and the sort of the turmoil continued through the summer and so as a lehman employee i was aware that there were all of this was going on but you never really knew for sure how close a re- we were to the brink until in fact it happened and so that last weekend That led to Lehman declaring bankruptcy at midnight New York time on the Sunday evening. So 5 a.m. in London. I remember going to bed that Sunday night, wondering what was going to happen. I don't think I slept a wink. I just lay there and stared at the ceiling and waiting for 5 a.m. to arrive. And the moment 5 a.m. struck, this is pre-iPhone or very, maybe very early. I I think it's pre-iPhone. Anyway, I looked at my BlackBerry. That was the device that tethered you to your employer back then. I looked at my BlackBerry at 5 a.m. London time. It says Lehman declares bankruptcy. I showered, headed into the office, which was down at Canary Wharf to see what fate was going to happen to or what was going to be the next steps. And I remember the head of investment banking a guy named Christian Meisner gathered us all in the auditorium there and said, all right, so uncharted waters here. PWC has taken over as the administrator. We will all be hearing from them shortly. It's not a matter of If you're going to be let go, it's when, because we are no longer a going concern. If you are a managing director and you've got clients and active mandates, when we're done here, go up to your office and resign because obviously we're done. And stay tuned. we'll you'll hear from us in a few days. So I did that. I went up and called my clients. In fact, my first call that I made was to Chris Winfrey, who at the time was the CFO of a German cable company called Unity Media, And we were one of the book runners on their potential pending IPO. I had to resign that mandate. And he said, don't worry about it, mate. We're not going public anytime soon. And because obviously the markets (laughs) were in complete turmoil. Chris ended up being my boss at uh, Charter many years later. But in the intervening days, we ultimately were acquired by Nomura. The U.S. piece of Lehman was acquired by Barclays, as you might remember, the non-U.S. So Europe and Asia was acquired by Nomura. And so we ended up, within a span of about eight to 10 days, migrating over to the Japanese bank. And uh, that's where I ended up working for the next few years.
0: I remember ripples of that chaos, because actually, as that happened, I was working in Canary Wharf as well. I was on secondment at the time to the London Olympics. And 2008, we were in the early construction phase of the Olympic Park. And we had offices up on the 25th floor of the Barclays building in Canary Wharf.
1: Ah. So we were right days, across the wharf from us. We were on the other side from Barclays. We were, yeah, in the uh,
0: days, of things like this were happening. We, the ripples were going around the office, and you kind of saw all these people wandering about aimlessly around Canary Wharf as though the, the world had just fallen in. Which, yes, it had. Yeah, they're very, very strange times.
1: Yeah. It certainly was. It was, you know, our our office was right next door to Morgan Stanley's building. And I remember on the day that this happened, I called my counterpart at Morgan Stanley and I said, hey, obviously this just happened. Do you have any need for junior bankers? I've got this team of great young analysts and associates, and obviously we're all out of work here. So if there's anybody that you can find a home for. And so my whole team wandered just next door, one building down the wharf, and all went in and interviewed at Morgan Stanley that morning. So it was sort of this surreal opportunity or moment in time when everything was up in the air and any bank that was in a, in a healthy position had an opportunity to come in and you know find some really terrific people. And so many folks from my team ended up various places around the street, around the city at the time. And we all know how it, it unfolded and how it, it ended. But it was something I'll never forget because Lehman was a fantastic place. Everybody who worked there has nothing but fond memories of the time and the people that we worked with.
0: That's the thing. You may work for a fantastic company at the time, but nothing lasts forever.
1: Yeah, yeah no, that's right. And the Lehman diaspora is uh, far and wide, and we find each other in all sorts of situations, and we remain close. I mentioned my path into Turo was through IAC. Well, the, the CFO of IAC, the person that led the investment into Turo, was my former boss at Lehman Brothers, a guy named Glenn Schiffman. He was the guy who sent me to London, he was my group head, sent me to London. He was at the time that the head of banking in Asia. And he and I developed a a great working relationship over my time at Lehman. But we stayed in touch and became great friends and colleagues. And he's a mentor to me. And so if I think about where I am today, and the the lucky opportunity I have to be the CFO of this great company, Turo, it's because I owe it to Lehman. I owe it to my friend Glenn from Lehman.
0: I can okay. think of so many similar sorts of things, Chuck. And back in my early management consulting career, as was with Coopers and Branded, going into PwC. Mm-hmm. 20 years on, I ended up working with colleagues that I made good friends with back in that time. Extend your network wherever possible. That's Don't right. Don't make enemies, make friends, keep in touch with people. They're probably great life lessons come out of these situations.
1: When younger people ask me for career advice, one of the things that I say is just echoing exactly on that point that life is long and these business circles are small. And you will find that you're going to run into people over and over again. And so don't burn bridges. If you're leaving a company, moving on somewhere else, be a good lever. Make sure that you are leaving on good terms be kind to people, be thoughtful, those kinds of uh, kindnesses that you can show to folks along the way, people remember, and they will pay back over time, keep your network alive, stay in touch with folks. One of the things that I told this story about when Lehman went bankrupt, Lehman was such a great place. Everybody liked it so much. Nobody ever left. And recruiters learned that it was very hard to pry people out of Lehman. And I developed zero relationships with executive recruiters while I was there because I just turned them down at, at every chance that they got. So I didn't know anybody. When Lima went bankrupt, I had nowhere to start and to think about where am I going to go find my next job and who should I call? I didn't have anybody to call. So that was a lesson for me that I've taken forward is that building and nurturing a network and keeping relationships active and healthy And answering the phone when people call and keeping your head up and your eyes and ears open doesn't mean that you're actively looking for a new job. It just means that you're taking an interest in building a network of people that can be, you know, useful to you and that you can be useful to them over time as your career evolves. You never know where it's going to go.
0: Exactly. And the worst time to be marketing yourself for a new job or your business for a new client is when you're desperate.
1: I say the same thing about. Capital raising. Raise money when you don't need to, because the moment in time you need to raise money is going to be the worst time for you to raise money. The other side knows that you're desperate. So you you never want to be in that position. Always be operating from a position of strength, whether it's marketing yourself or your company, raising capital, whatever it may be. Keep in mind that those moments in time when you're feeling strong, there's going to be a time when you're not as strong, you're feeling down and you want to lean on some folks, lean on your network. Yeah, it pays dividends to have invested in that when times are good.
0: So Chuck, five years time, where are you going
1: to be? I hope I'm sitting right here in the seat at Turo. I think that the future looks really bright. We have so much still to do. And the success that we've had over these last few years just emboldens, I think, us as a group of leaders at, at Turo, we call it all the Turo employees tourists. We feel really excited and energized about the marketplace that we've been able to build and the platform for empowerment that Turo provides for our hosts in our community. And so I'm hoping that five years from now, I'm sitting here, we are continued to grow the team. I think that when you think about any marketplace, but specifically one that is kind of oriented towards travel like we are, we should be ubiquitous, we should be everywhere that people are traveling from and traveling to. So I hope we're in a lot more markets. I hope that we're, you know, serving categories that go beyond just cars. I think that we have the opportunity to kind of be everywhere uh, that people are looking for mobility solutions and Turo is uniquely well positioned to do that. So we've got a lot of exciting things to build a lot of things in the pipeline. And I hope uh, you know. Five years from now, we'll get together, if not sooner, and talk about all the progress that we've made.
0: Absolutely, Chuck. That sounds fantastic. It's been really, really interesting talking today. We've covered so much
1: ground in this podcast. Yes.
0: Chuck, thank you for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO Show.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate the conversation.